We continue uh, walking through Romans, looking at uh, the life in the Spirit, and you know today we find ourselves in a, a small chunk of Romans 8, and that's where we find and pick up where we left off last time. So Paul says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we come to you again asking for that work that you do in our hearts and minds, revealing to us your truth through your word. We pray that you would be with your servant Andrew this morning as he has prepared and really looked at your word in depth, that as you work through and the Spirit works in our lives, making connections in our our heads and our hearts, that we would know how to respond to your word. We do this in community, not just individually for us, but for all of us here as a collective, as a part of your body. Help us to understand the ways in which you are working, the ways in which you are calling us, the ways in which you are purifying us as gold is purified by fire. So we do press into you this morning, Lord, asking for that special work that you do in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. You guys were better than the first service. They were bad this morning. We're in this uh, great chapter of Romans chapter 8, and we're sort of connecting the dots from the opening salvo where it says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus to where we're going to end up next week where uh, Paul, the great apostle, says through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we are more than conquerors. And nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This week we're in what Addison called a small chunk, I'll call a magnificent chunk, uh, of Scripture, uh, 26 to 30, where there are three important sort of planks that Paul lays down as he is building this tremendous bridge of Romans chapter 8. And I want us to get into it this morning by starting on a November day in the fields of Scotland, 1785. So, November day, fields of Scotland, 1785, there, Rabbi was out plowing his field. And as he plowed his field, uh, he took his plow directly over a mouse nest. Robbie is better known to us as Robert Burns, who is the poet of Scotland. Uh, he's the one that wrote Auld Lang Syne. We'll sing that, you know, as we go into 
the, the new year. But on this occasion, some said while he still had the plow in his hand, uh, he sat down and he penned a poem to the mouse. And he, you know, states his sort of solidarity with the mouse. He feels bad for wrecking his home, and especially here in November, there's not stuff around that you can easily make a new one. And then he says this, but mouse, you are not alone. This is the English version, by the way, uh, as opposed to that Scottish. No, the, the old Scottish is a little bit difficult, but mouse, you are not alone in proving that foresight may be vain. The best laid schemes of mice and men go often askew and leave us nothing but grief and pain for promised joy. You guys are probably familiar with that. You've used that saying before, the best laid schemes or the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. I was thinking about that this week because this passage connects us with the best laid plans in all of the universe. Uh, but they're not of mice and they're not of men. Uh, they are of God. Uh, and they come to us, uh, you know, this word comes to us in a very similar place to the mouse. Uh, our, our homes get destroyed, our, our dreams, our hopes, our fears. You know, we lose our jobs, our relationships fall apart. We find ourselves you know, without family or friends. We find ourselves worried and just tossed about. Uh, very similar to the, the mouse who loses his home. But what Paul is saying and what he is saying to the first century Christians, because remember... You know, when we go to Romans 16 and we see that whole list of people there, you've got folks who are Jews and Gentiles, you've got folks who are, are men and women, slaves and free, all sorts of people, and they too have had their, their mouse nests, as it were, disrupted. They were having a nice life in Macedonia when all of a sudden they found themselves deported as slaves to Rome to, to serve the nation. They, they thought as Jews that the kingdom was going to come in a particular way and now they're hearing that, you know, we have a different relationship to the law and there's all these different things and how do we go forward? They thought that their Roman aristocratic lifestyle would be the thing that would bring them happiness and like so many Westerners, they get to the top and they find it empty. They find that the, the gods of, of wine and sex and all of these things cannot fulfill them. And, and what Paul is saying to this community is he's saying there's a bigger plan. There's a better plan. Uh, there is a plan that encourages us in all of our weakness and all of our questionings and everything to throw ourselves on this God. And that's where I want us to go uh, this morning as we walk through this. And I'm going to walk through it backwards because by now you're kind of getting a little bit of Paul's style. Uh, Paul will make an assertion uh, and then he'll give a couple of things to sort of back it up. So we're going to work backwards through this and we're going to work with sort of the foundation first and then we're going to move to what I would consider to be one of the applications of 
this passage. So let's start with a plan that's fixed in eternity. You really see that in 28, 29, and 30. Uh, I'm sure that you know these verses. Maybe you have had late night theological discussions over an adult beverage about these verses. Uh, maybe you have wondered about what they mean and how they get applied. But here's what Paul says. Uh, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work to good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Here we see this connection that Paul wants us to see that goes out of our time and space all the way back to eternity. Paul says a very similar thing in Ephesians chapter 1, the verses just before our um, assurance of pardon this morning. Here Paul says it this way, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Here is where Paul wants us to go as we wrestle with the disruption of the mouse nest of our life. He wants us to understand that that disruption is part of a bigger picture. And it's a picture that has existed from all eternity. Now, I know that, you know, from a theological standpoint, some of you are troubled about the relationship between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, between God's will, our choice, some of those things. Uh, I, I don't want to get into all of that this morning, but I want to affirm both of them. Uh, the sovereignty of God is something that is absolutely true. We see it here. We see it in Ephesians 1. We recognize that God has been at work from before the foundations of the world, choosing, applying. Uh, we're going to see that even more so here uh, in this passage. Uh, he's been at work before we were even created doing some of these things. Now, does that negate human responsibility? Of course not. We can go to other places in the scripture where we, we clearly see we are called to respond, to be responsible, to bear fruit, all of these different things. Uh, so when we talk about God's sovereignty and human responsibility, we recognize our limitations uh, to see exactly how they fit together. But what Paul is saying here, and, and what the Spirit wants us to understand here, is in relationship to our miceness, in relationship to the, the disruptions that come in our lives, that they are part of a bigger plan, that God wasn't taken by surprise at that moment when you lost your job, that God wasn't taken by surprise that moment when you received that diagnosis. But these things all fit into this bigger plan which God knew before the foundations of the world. And he, he connects that to this. And so we are to keep that in mind and have that as an anchor when we're walking through the disruptions of our mouse nest. 
that will inevitably come in all of our life. And if you're young and you haven't experienced those things, uh, they'll come. <laughs> we, we all know that, that they come, that, that we experience those disruptions. I mentioned job. I mean, some of you feel it very acutely at home, just relationships that you have with family. You've lost that. Or, or divorce, the way that that can come in and, and, and wreck a home in, in so many ways that have long-lasting applications. And, and we feel the difficulty of those things. One of the things that Paul wants us to understand is that he knows. God knows because this is a bigger picture that has been in his view since before the foundations of the world, fixed in eternity. One of the things that's interesting here, I alluded to that a moment ago, is that when you get to verse 30, uh, those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. Those verbs all come to us in the aorist tense. Uh, the aorist is the past completed action. Uh, the most interesting one about that is sort of the glorified, because we often think about glorifying as something that will happen to us in the future. But one of the things that Paul says to this group of Christians in the first century, some of whom are slaves, uh, living a very difficult life, put in some incredibly uncomfortable situations, uh, to those who are Jews, you know, just all sorts of different people, as he said, this is who you are, and it's finished, and it's accomplished, and it's certain. And again, you know, we struggle with these things. Identity is one of the things that, you know, in this postmodern society, we're constantly searching for an identity. We're constantly looking for something uh, by which we can define ourselves. And what's so encouraging in this passage is, is Paul says that if you are in Christ, that identity is finished. It's done. It's completed. You are already glorified. Think about all of the saints that are worshiping the Lord before heaven. I mean, you, you are with them as a finished product already. We don't often think about ourselves that way. Uh, but one of the things that Paul wants to say is that from eternity, things are settled. We live in a, in a world that is certain. And we need to hang on to this because, again, when our mouse nests are disrupted, we don't feel that certainty. That's when we, we start to move out in all of these different directions and we flail and we seek and, you know, I need to find an identity. No, it's done. You are justified, glorified. It is finished. Now, the second thing that I want us to note, not only does this sort of have a, a broad eternal note, uh, but it also is a plan that is for our good. This is Romans 8, 28. This is uh, one of those coffee cup or, you know, designer poster verses uh, where it says, we know that uh, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those called according to his purpose. Uh, this is a, a, such a, a powerful verse, and I suspect that many of you know it. Some of you may have had bad associations with this verse, uh, not because of anything in the verse, but the way that people used it in your life. 
You know, at a, at a mouse nest disruption time, somebody came in with a, a sort of a cheap word, a, a trite word, just say, well, you know, God's working everything together for good. And you're like, wait a minute, I don't feel that right now. Uh, this this it wasn't what I needed at that particular time. And that's true. We have to be careful, you know, with how we apply the truths to people's situations in life. But that doesn't mean that this verse is not true. And that doesn't mean that this verse is not applicable, and it certainly doesn't mean that this verse is not glorious, because it absolutely is. Now, in terms of approaching it, deconstructing it, one of the things that we need to know, or we need to recognize, is first of all, that this is true for those who are in Christ. You know, Paul's been talking about that throughout Romans chapter 8. Here he, he puts it this way. We know that for those who love God, uh, all things work together to, for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, there is a binary sense to the world uh, as the Bible describes it. Again, not very popular in a postmodern culture. Uh, we, we don't like things binary. We like things to be a little bit fuzzy. We don't like to say that there is an in and there is an out, that there are those who love God and who are called according to his purpose, and there are those that don't love God. Uh, and, and so we, we wrestle with those things. And, and this is really an invitation, you know, as Paul is running through Romans 8, he's saying this to a group of Christians uh, who are, are struggling in their own moment in time, and he's saying there's tremendous comfort for you in Christ. And I guess part of what we would say this morning is, you know, if you're not in Christ, the story that we want to share with you is the tremendous comfort that we receive from being in Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It doesn't have anything to do with my obedience, but it has everything to do with how God is working out His plan in this world, and, and He has, has made me, has made many of us a part of that. So there's this real warm invitation that says, if you're outside of Christ, you know, there is room inside uh, that you might experience the beauty of this promise. Now, the promise is that he works things together for good for those who love him, for the called according to his purpose. So, that means I should expect a BMW uh, under my tree this Christmas, because that certainly sounds good to me. But this is, of course, not the answer to what the good is. And this is where we struggle, because we have our own definition of what the good is. Uh, but there is a specific sense in which God is using this idea of good here. Uh, you see this as he talks about verse 29, for those he foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his Son. There is a sense in which the good that God desires for our lives is that we be the people that he has created us to be. That we be a people who reflect the glory of God, that we be a people who reflect uh, a, a life that brings glory. to that, That's what God is doing. And that's the good that he is working in our life. 
And, and this is very similar to, to what he says in Romans chapter 5, where he says, uh, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, God's purpose in our life is that character, a character that is, uh, you know, has fruit and hope, all of those things that he talks about. His purpose is not that we be wealthy. His purpose is not that we have power or prestige. His purpose is not that we, you know, have all of these friends. Uh, his purpose may not even be that you have a happy marriage. His purpose may not be uh, that every one of your kids succeed in a particular way. He is working things together for good for those who call him uh, or for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Douglas Moo, who is a commentator, says this. He says, the idea that this verse promises the believer material wealth or physical well-being, for instance, betrays a perversion of good into an exclusively material interpretation. God may well use trials in the areas uh, of wealth or material goods or success uh, to produce what God considers a much higher good, a stronger faith, a more certain hope. But the promise to us is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage and bring us safely and certainly to the glorious destination of that pilgrimage. So understanding that God has this plan from all of eternity, and that plan is to work good in our lives. Uh, it gives us a confidence, it gives us a freedom to be able to go to Him in prayer. Let me just say one other thing about, about the good. Uh, note that it's very communal. Did you see that in verse 29 where He says, He has uh, predestined us to, to be adopted as, uh, let me quote it directly here uh, oops. Uh, in order that he Christ uh, might be the firstborn among many brothers uh, there is a there's a real community sense to this throughout Romans uh, you always see this much more language we're going to see that we're more than conquerors. He's always talking about more, more uh, in a really good way. And here he's saying, you know, this good is really tied up with the community, with the family that you are a part of. So again, one of the ways that we stumble over this good has to do with we interpret things very materially and we don't have a heavenly picture uh, of what the good is. The other way is we inter interpret it very individually. And we don't have a communal sense. And this is, again, Western individualism just, individualism just makes things so difficult for us. But, but one of the things that, that Paul is saying and the Spirit is saying is that as we are adopted into the family of God, there is a goodness that comes in this, this broader family. So again, think about this. You've got the Macedonian slave. You've got the, the Jewish law uh, studier. You've got the Roman aristocrat. They're all together. And they're saying, good? You know, like, they, these aren't, this isn't necessarily my tribe. But that's what Jesus is saying. No, this is your tribe. 
Your tribe is full of a diverse group of people uh, that are, are living out this good that God has planned for us because we all belong to Him in a particular way. And the last thing that we'll, we'll just note, and there's several several strands uh, to pull together here, is that this plan overcomes weakness. So we have a, a plan from all eternity, a plan for our good, and it's a plan that overcomes our weakness. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Why is the likewise there? It's a connector. He's connecting us. Maybe back to verse 13 where he was, or sorry, verse 18 where he's talking about sufferings. I do not consider the sufferings of this present time worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Uh, he could be continuing that thought as he's talking about weakness. I rather think that he's, throughout this chapter, been talking about the Spirit in various ways. It's the Spirit that sets us free, verses 2 and 3. It's the Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the Spirit who teaches us to say, Abba, Father. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So part of a list of what the Spirit does in our hearts and in our lives. And when we understand... Again, this is what Paul is sort of deconstructing or breaking down for us. He goes back and he says, you are part of a plan uh, that's been from all of eternity. It's a plan that is working to good. Therefore, when you come to the times of weakness, you can be sure that the Spirit will help you in that weakness. Verse 35 of this chapter, he says... Um, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? I mean, these were things that were all very real for that group in Romans 16. You know, some of them probably died because of persecution. They probably died because of famine or sword or nakedness or any of these other things. These were real distresses. Their mouse nests were disrupted because of these things. And what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. When all of those things, because this plan is from before all times, the Spirit comes in and He helps us in our weakness. The Spirit gives us the strength. The Spirit gives us the power to endure these things. And not just to endure them, but to actually live through them because we're connected what we're going through, the good that God desires for our life with His plan. So, you know, again, going back to Romans 5, you count it joy when you go through suffering. Now, we can't do that absent this big picture. But once we know this big picture, once we know that we are Christ, that we are His beloved child, uh, that He has a plan, that he is working for our good, then we begin to understand, yeah, I, I can look at uh, suffering or I can look at trials like James calls it. I can look at these things differently because I have the bigger picture. Uh, I have a, a categories to put this in. And so we are encouraged in our weakness uh, to, to look to Christ. 
we're encouraged in our weakness to, to rely on the Spirit who helps us in our weakness. Uh, and, and then specifically, Paul says, he, he gives us this sort of illustration of, of weakness. He says, we don't even know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, groanings too deep for words. I really uh, have appreciated just sort of sitting with this verse over the, the last little bit, meditating on this, because I recognize in my own life that prayer is really hard. I don't know if anybody's got an amen to that, but uh, prayer is hard. Uh, oftentimes when I think about prayer being hard, I, I really look back at myself. Um, I'm, I am not very focused person all the time, easily distracted. Oh, there's a deer. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. The, uh, <laughs> I, get just, I lose my train of thought, and I just think, if I were more focused, well, then I would be a better prayer. Or, you know, I, I have all of these theological t you know, themes and concepts running through my mind, and I think, well, if I can just get the right words and put them all together, then I would be a better prayer. I don't know if any of you ever feel that way, you just feel the weakness, the inadequacy. What's interesting about this is Paul says, you know, our problems are a lot deeper than that. The problems are, aren't just our lack of focus. Our, our problems aren't just, you know, an inability to find the right words or to say it in the right way. Our problem is we don't even know what we're supposed to pray for. We don't even know how to ask certain things. I think about this all the time with my kids. I, I pray for my kids um, I think many of you are here. I think those of you with adult children know that we pray for our adult children even more than our, our, our younger kids because uh, we realize that we have no control, uh, that any control that we had, thought we had at one point was an illusion, and we are completely desperate as we go before God. But I have no idea how to pray for them. Because I, I, don't know, I don't know what the good is. You know, I'm always tempted to pray things like, you know, help them not to get in a car accident. Every time my phone rings and it's one of the kids, I'm always like, oh, what happened here? I'm so relieved when they're like, hey, can you get this? And yeah, absolutely, so happy. You know, I have anxiety about that. Not that they're bad drivers, but yeah, just stuff happens. But maybe God wants them to get into a car accident. You know, may, maybe that's the good in their life. Like, I don't think I should be praying for them to get into a car accident. But I need to be open to the fact that I don't know what the good is. You know, what about when you're praying for the, uh, the healing uh, to go on in a person who is ill? Again, I don't think that we, we need to pray. We can't pray that they're healed. Of course we can. Uh, but we also have to understand that there are things that we don't know. And I don't know always how God is working these things. And that, it seems to me, is what Paul is saying here. Is that we, we are weak in so many ways. Tribulation, sword, nakedness. But we're weak even when we come to prayer. You know, something that seems so basic shows up our weakness in such fundamental ways. Paul Miller in his book, Praying Life, 
he, he puts it very, I think, poignantly where he says, the difficulty of prayer and coming just as we are is that we are messy. And prayer makes it worse. When we slow down to pray, we're immediately confronted with how unspiritual we are, how difficult it is to concentrate on God, how limited we are in knowing what to pray for. Nothing exposes our spiritual powerlessness like prayer. But this is the beauty of what Paul is getting us to here, is that this is exactly the place when we are powerless and when we are weak that God is desiring to meet us. You know, Paul will say later on in 1 Corinthians, he'll say, I, I no longer boast in my strength, but I boast in my weakness, in my infirmity. That's where Paul boasts. Why? Well, I think it's this. I mean, if we think about faith and we think of what, what it means to be connected to God, you know, our faith, our, our connection to God it is probably best defined as surrender. When we've absolutely given up on ourselves, when we've absolutely given up on our own sort of self-salvation programs, our figuring out what the good is, our trusting in our own designs for our kids or for our parents or for whoever it might be for ourselves, when we've given up on that and we've surrendered to God, we find a freedom there. We find an invitation, a warmth. We find a tender Father who loves us. And one of the ways that we know that this is true is because this is exactly the way of the gospel. Jesus' most profound work, and the reason we're so secure in this, is not because Jesus became strong, but because he became weak. And he submitted himself to the death on a cross. Absolutely nothing in order that we might have everything. Jesus himself understood this prayer battle in the garden, right? Father, uh, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but but yours be done. I mean, he, he's like, I, I, I know what I want, but I'm not sure that this is the way to go. So not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew what it was to be weak. This is what the, the, you know, Paul again means when he says he emptied himself, made himself nothing in order that we might know the absolute riches of being connected to this one whose name is now glorified above every name. And again, I, I just put this in terms of invitation. If, if you're here this morning and you're outside of a relationship to Jesus, we could put it this way, if you haven't surrendered, you know, if you're still holding on, uh, to anything, you're holding on to your career, you're holding on to your marriage, you're holding on to your relationships as, as being the primary source of, re, of meaning in your life. The invitation is to surrender to the one who made himself nothing in order that we might be given everything.
And this then is the way forward too. Now I speak to those of you, you know, who have been walking with Jesus for a long time. You know, we get frustrated and I think part of our frustration has to do with faulty ideas of, of sanctification. We get frustrated because prayer is hard. We get frustrated because, you know, we're, we're continuing to see these areas where we don't really make progress in our lives. The invitation is surrender. Because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. You know, and when we acknowledge that weakness and powerlessness before God, we find a joy and we find a freedom that carries us forward. And incidentally, this is for His glory. You know, it not only carries us forward in terms of we feel better about who we are, we feel better about our identity, we feel better as we face the various mouse nest disruptions of our lives, but it's for His glory. I mean, Paul, the great apostle, I'm not going to boast in my strength, but I'm going to boast in my weakness because I know that it's in my weakness that God is glorified. It's in my weakness, my inability to find the right words to share the gospel with my neighbor, my, my inability to, to see how my life here connects with uh, stuff around the world. It's in my weakness that God meets us and oftentimes does amazing things.